Welcome to the Property Profits Podcast. My name is Travis Wells, and I will be your host every single week. It is my job to bring on a specialist in every part of real estate, whether that be retail, big commercial, luxury, flipping, land, you name it. I cannot wait to introduce you to these people because there are masters at their craft out there. At the end of each podcast, my mastermind group will come on and Q&A with these people and ask real-time, real-life questions so that we can all learn. I cannot wait to see you on my podcast. So, uh, guys, I'm going to let Guy introduce himself. Um, He's a OG real estate investor with tons of knowledge and corpus and uh, impressed the heck out of me. I actually uh, have assigned a couple deals to him in Corpus and uh, some of his strategies and way of doing things. I've actually learned a few things. So I wanted to bring him on here. Well, thanks. Um, you know, funny, funny uh, story here, though, is uh, Travis is um, this is only the third and fourth assignment deals I've ever done taken from an investor. I did one about in 22 years, I, this is this this next one will be the fourth one, two from you and one from each other investor, two other separate investors. One was about eight or nine years ago. I did one recently, and then and then two from you. <clears throat> As a general rule, I don't I don't do a, uh, accept assignments uh, just because most of the uh, investors don't know how to properly draft contracts, and I'm, I think you can probably tell by these deals we're doing. I'm very conscientious about dotting every uh, I, uh, crossing every T, and doing that every time. Um, and and I'll I'll explain more about that in just a moment, but. Uh, my background is I spent 17 years as a police officer and a police helicopter pilot. Um, most of that time was up in in Dallas. <clears throat> oh, let me let me explain to those that just jumped on. I I apologize. I've been fighting uh, kind of a, a a walking pneumonia that's been persistent. So I'll do my best not to cough on you. But uh, I'm not trying to be rude. But that's what's going on. <clears throat> So I hold a commercial rotorcraft license, helicopter license, and a private single-engine uh, land uh, or airplane certificate as well. I'm certified, uh, was a certified peace officer, was, not anymore, let it go, uh, both in Texas and Colorado. But uh, I was got getting burned out <clears throat> after uh, 17 years. And then we adopted our son in 1993. He was a newborn. And I just said, I got to, you know, I, back then, you're not going to believe this. I think I was making $35,000 a year. Uh, this is in the 80s and 90s. <clears throat> and, of course, we tried so hard to get pregnant. My wife did not want to uh, go back to work, and I said, well, I'll do whatever it takes. So, uh, ultimately, um, I, I said, I'm, I'm giving this up. I did. My first year was in, I got licensed. I got studied in 98, got my real estate license in 99, and I did real estate during the day, and then I worked the evening shift. <clears throat> So for one full year, I worked. I lived on about four hours sleep a night, um, and I was not young at that point. I was already forty-one years old, so it was tough, tough, tough. But um, you know, when you have a goal that's just burning in you, you're not going to let anything stop you. So at the end of that year, saved up enough money and just decided, you know, I've got to either give up real estate or I've got to give up policing. And I wanted to give up policing, so we did it. And there were some very lean times and some very uh, very good times as well. But so I got licensed in 99, bought my first foreclosure in 2000, 
<clears throat> and we start flipping homes and keeping some for rentals and stuff. So I don't know, in 20, well, almost 23 years, I guess now, I don't know how many we've done. Last count, we were over 500. I have no idea. Never kept count, never had reason to. But then I was fortunate that I, I have a brother who is a uh, a uh, Notre Dame uh, uh, trained attorney who did nothing but big land deals. Because when I got out of real estate school, I did, you know, I still got out with zero knowledge, basically. I didn't understand contracts. And I've always been fascinated with the legal side of everything in the world. So he he spent countless hours. I could never repay him for all the hours he spent training me on contracts, contract law surveys, title commitments, <clears throat> structuring things and so forth. So uh, it, it was, you know, that's where I, I, I really started to learn things. And uh, uh, it just made a world of difference to me. And I've always lived by the motto, uh, as we get into the, the survey portion, and I'll let you go go from there. But <clears throat> he told me two things that were just critical. Number one, um, when you're doing a deal, you do it right. You do it legal, moral, ethical, because once you step over that line, you can never step back over and go, well, I know. You know it's like, like he, he said, <clears throat> if you go in and you steal stuff from a store, but you only do it one time, you're still a thief. So when you when you screw somebody over or you do things illegally or immorally, then you can't come back on this side of the line and go, well, no, that's not who I am. Yes, you are. So I've always lived by that. And the other thing is, is never step over a dollar to save a dime because no deal is better than a bad deal. And so you have to walk away to some of those from some of those. So two very, very uh, important lessons I learned from him, and I've, I've, I'll never forget them because they've served me well in the last 23 years. So That's awesome. Yeah, and that's uh, something that stuck out when we were initially talking and some of the verbiage you were using about how, you know, you want to be straight up with people and transparent, things like that, is you don't meet a lot of people like like that in this industry. I don't want to say they're not there, but... It's very, you know, it's very difficult to find people like that because, you know, they just don't want to be transparent with things because they think for whatever reason it's going to mess up their deal, you know, and uh, that's why it's not very, it's not, you're right. It's not very common. uh, And and that's why when we got to talk and I'm like, man, here's a guy. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I kind of made an exception. You know, obviously, if I wanted to buy from somebody who was going to wholesale a deal, I've had ample opportunity. But I, you know, uh, probably a year ago or if that long, I read about a case in 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 Houston where the not to get off topic here, where a another investor bought from a wholesaler. Right. Got it. Got the contract assigned. They both the wholesaler and the assignee, so the assigner and the assignee both got sued by uh, the family of the seller because the the wholesaler knew she had dementia. Mm. So now you've got an invalid because she's not of sound mind and body, and the, the con- it already gone through. So now everybody's involved in a lawsuit. And one thing you'll know about me is uh, I will do anything to stay out of court. I, I don't want to spend any, one minute in court, never, for any reason. Yeah. <clears throat> So yeah, no, definitely uh, commend you on that, and 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 just putting yourself out there and being honest and transparent like that. And what really stuck out to me also was whenever we were, and I'm gonna, I'm, I won't give details on our deal, but twice you've asked for a survey, which is normal, 
but there's certain verbiage and things you'd like for your surveys to to have look like and and you're very very particular with that and i've only ran across one other person like that and i if you wouldn't mind kind of explaining uh your reasons for for the way you you operate around those sure so this was again some of the stuff i learned from my my brother um <clears throat> Not only does the contract, you have to you have to know the contract, whatever contract you're using. In Texas, I use the track contract. It's all I use. It's all I've ever used. But you have to know the contract. Contemporaneous with that, you have to know what goes along or what is associated with that contract. Your rights and obligations, both as in, in the survey and the title commitment and so forth. <clears throat> when you realize that Everybody uh, in in business is, you know, I'm, I'm going to take care of my family. The surveyor is going to take care of theirs. The title company is going to take care of theirs. So they're they're trying to place liability on someone else or at least remove it off themselves somehow. I do it in my contracts with, uh, you know, to stay out of court with arbitration, binding arbitration, so forth. But he taught me how to sit down and really look at a contract, uh, a uh, survey and make sure you get a a proper survey, a good, what I call a clean survey. And so <clears throat> most surveyors will, will go out and do the survey. They'll show the structures, the improvements and so forth, but they, they don't necessarily show the other things. I want, I want things that are, I want to know where all the easements are, right? The, the survey is just a depiction of if you look at earth and narrow it down, here's this property, here's the boundaries, here's what's on the property. <clears throat> And through all these years I've been doing this, there's so many people who, again, step over a dollar to save a dime, and they end up with a property that's got either this house, and this just happens more often than you believe, is protruding onto the neighboring lot. Well, a survey would show that. It allows you then to take care of that or walk away from the deal or whatever. But I always want to see all the... the uh, Undisclosed rights and easements and so forth, encroachments. Make sure we're on the correct lot that the, we've got the correct legal description that matches the title commitment and so forth. Size of the lot. Um, and the reason that's important, uh, guys, is because uh, although I don't do I do value add, but I don't add square footage on most of the houses I do. I very seldom ever add square footage. I'll put a deck on stuff like that. But if you don't know what the <clears throat> what the setbacks are, the, the building setbacks. Um, if you don't know where the easements are, you go to uh, put a new structure on or a new improvement, um, you're going to end up in trouble, right? Because now that might sit in an easement. It might actually encroach onto the neighbor's property. They can force you to remove it. So all of those things, I, I'm, I'm big on solving a problem before it becomes a problem. And that's why I do that with my <clears throat> my easements. And essentially what I do is I just explain to the surveyor what I always get is a, a category 1A, you know, if it's a, a, a lot block, it's a, it's a 1A condition 2 survey. <clears throat> now, the uniform standard appraisal uh, standards, that uh, they they tell you what's supposed to be in there. Now, very few investors and agents know what that what is entailed in that. So I just simply put in there what I need. I want to see the not just the boundary lines. I want to see the improvements, the structures, whether there's an outbuilding, the main structure, the house itself, 
Uh, any concrete drives or, or, or concrete patios, those are improvements. <clears throat> so I want to see all of those, the size of those. <clears throat> Again, pardon me. And then I want to see the distance of each of those corners from the structures and the substructures or the outbuildings from the nearest property line. So the corners of those to the nearest property line. So I can be sure if I want to go add something on or I need to make a change, <clears throat> how much room do I have? And you say, well, you know, one inch is 20 feet. Well, you know, I don't, I don't have their software that they use, so I can't go exactly 12 feet out if I'm going to make a 12 by 16 deck. So I want to make sure what I've got will allow me to build what I'm going to build. Usually it's decks and things like that, uh, patios and so forth. But um, so that's essentially why I get these kind of, I just, I basically set the expectations, Travis, of what my, what I want in my survey, because surveyors are like, nope, anyone else, they're going to, they're going to get away with what they can get away with. That's human nature. But if I say, this is what I need in the survey, if you want to be paid, this is what you need to include in the survey, then they're, they're kind of like, oh, crap, you know, I guess I got to go ahead and do it. It's not much more work. They've got it all in the software. They've got the measurements by GPS. It's just using their software to, to measure it out. So that's kind of what I do is uh, just kind of set those expectations up front. This is what I need. So when I get the survey, I don't have to go, oh, man, I forgot to tell them this. I'm telling them everything, everything up front. Here's what I want. That's all the awesome. fences, utility poles, um, structures, uh, you know, all those measurements, setback lines, easements, everything. And then <clears throat> I also tell them in Schedule B of the title commitment, which is the exceptions to coverage, I tell them I want you to notate on the survey whether or not, say it's an easement. <clears throat> it's not a blanket easement, just an easement, whatever it is, a utility or other. Does it or does it not affect this property? And the reason I do that is because if they say, because when a title company, when they when they do the research, uh, title search, pardon me, they will throw in anything in exceptions that looks like it remotely applies to that property. They don't they don't dig deep down into it and go, oh, it definitely applies. If it looks like it could apply, not that it does, if it could, they're going to throw it in there as an exception. It is the buyer's job to make that survey tell them whether that uh, particular exception applies or not. Now, they're not going to go research, um, you know, mineral interest and things like that. You'd have to get a landman to do that. But I don't worry about the mineral interest because I'm not interested in that anyway on these uh, lot and block subdivisions. But what I am interested in is getting as clean a survey and as great a coverage as I can possibly get. And that's where, when you look in the, the TREC contract, paragraphs 6A, uh, C, and D, under 6D, where I can object, that's when I send my objections after I've got the title commitment and the survey. Surveyor comes back and says, well, uh, Schedule B, item 10C does not apply. Okay. All I have to do is tell the title company if they accept that survey and say, well, we, we assume he knows what he's doing, they will remove that exception. That's the purpose of the ob objection paragraph is to remove those things uh, that can be removed. Or, you know, if they can't be removed, you can just waive those objections, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a deep dive into that. I I really like that. And uh, 
you got me thinking a little in depth about a few, uh, a few things that I do with those. So that's awesome. Appreciate that. And I know that a lot, a lot of people, uh, the people in this group are newer, but it's, this is gold. I can really soak this in, uh, cause you'll be way ahead of 99% of investors. And ages too, I will tell you. Yeah. In 23 years of doing this, uh, agents never look at the, the title commitment. They don't know what they're looking at. Um, and, uh, but, but if you do, and this is the other thing, you know, you never have to include a weasel clause in your contract. If you want to get out of it, if you understand the contract, there, there's 14 ways for you to walk legally, morally, and ethically by the promulgated language in the contract. You know, the objection, paragraph 60, is golden, right? Because in 96, 97% of the title commitments you get, there are objectionable matters that cannot be cured. If they cannot be cured, you can walk with no penalty, period. And what he means by weasel clauses, a lot of investors or wholesalers or whatever, when they write up a contract, they put, you know, my dog has to agree to this, you know, or whatever, right? This is like serious. People do this. And that way, if they can't find, if they're a wholesaler, if they can't find a buyer or whatever it is, they have a way to get out. But like he's saying, if you know your contract, title commitment, things like that, you have a bajillion ways to get out rightfully. So, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, another thing you had mentioned is that, and I, and I deal with only private money also, um, but you have a lot of private money um, investors. And that means that your integrity is very high also because lots of folks trust you with their money. But if you don't mind me asking, how did you find your private money? Um, actually, uh, most of them were clients when when I helped them buy or sell a house early on. And, you know, I, 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 I started doing things with my own money. But as you know, even mega large, even Elon Musk, when he bought uh, Twitter, went to get some private money, correct? You will always run out of money. We would do that. We'd buy two houses. We're rehabbing them. We run out of money. And so I, I hired a coach out of Canada, and uh, he kind of got me lined up perfectly to, to understand that you will always, always, always need those relationships. And anybody that asks me now, I'll say, what, what's the one thing you need more than anything when you're starting a business? You need relationships. Because with the right relationships, you can have money, expertise, time. Uh, you can leverage their, their knowledge, skills, so forth. Expertise, what I call um, financial capital, right? Um, it, it's really relational capital that you need more than anything because then you have everything you need. You, you know, you guys on here have Travis. That's relational capital. He can give you his expertise and so forth. But what I did is I, I, I made up a pact with myself and my wife that if we use third-party money, we will never, ever, they will never, ever, ever lose one dime of principal or one dime of interest. Now, that doesn't mean to say we will never lose money. We've The most we've ever lost in one deal was $30,000. We had a big rehab. I used private money for the purchase. I used uh, our money for the, the rehab. So we had 100000 just in the rehab. Uh, and we got 70 of that back. <clears throat> and uh, this this private money person was a, a an IBM middle manager 
who retired and, you know, retired people are great for, for private money people because if they have money, and I'm not talking about retired people living on Social Security. I'm talking about retired people that have pensions, that have savings. They understand if their money isn't working, they will be. So they've got to keep their money working. The problem is finding people they can trust, and you can never, ever, ever um, destroy that trust. So even on that one, I lost $30,000. He got 100% of his principal, and I got you know 70% of mine back. But he said, he told me, he said, well, why didn't you tell me you lost money? I said, because it doesn't matter. Our agreement, when we shook hands at that restaurant that morning, I said, here's the way we work. And I said, you will never lose one dime and you will get 100% of your interest, regardless of my loss. And if you will hold true to that and they see that, you will never, ever, ever want for money. I've got over a million dollars right now that I can put to use. I don't have enough properties. And I'm bragging, it took me a long time to get there because people are very mistrusting right now and, and rightfully so. But you you have to be willing to do what others won't do uh, in order to have those kind of uh, those kind of funds available to you. Yeah. And when I say that, I mean I I I can I on one of my calls, <clears throat> had one over here, we need to do it quick. I called a friend of mine, I said, uh, I said, man, I need $190,000. I need it wired next week. And I said, here's the property. Here's what I'm doing. Here's my entry strategy, exit strategy. Here's how my, here's my what I got to put into it, which was virtually nothing. I put a new roof on it, <clears throat> and we staged it. And uh, he said, tell me where to send the money. Now, for most people, that makes no sense, right? You know, I would never do that. But he knew me. He's known me for about four or five years now. And he knows, he's seen, he's watched me, and he knows that I'm legitimate, if you will. And, um, you know, we always sit down at the beginning and have a conversation, breakfast or lunch, and explain. And then I tell him, look me up. I, I want everybody to research me to the hilt. Do, do you know, skip trace me, find anything you can find. There's nothing bad out there. <clears throat> and then when you do that, you, we do a quick flip on that. He gets his money back and he's like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm not only beating inflation, I'm kicking its butt, you know, so um so that's that's really the 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 um, the emphasis I'd want to say is, you know, you can get a deal, but you need to be able to lock it up, and you're going to need private money to do that. Yeah, heck yeah, that's awesome. And you uh, you have a good online presence, also. I see all the um, instructional material you've put out there, so uh, yeah, that's probably what they see when they pull you up. So that's awesome. We've done a few videos just on things like deeds and so forth. As you know, I draft my own. And it's the other thing with these private money people. I draft my own deeds, my own notes, my own deeds of trust. They're, they're, they, they're completely trusting. Most of them don't even know what they're invested in. They're invested in me. That's the difference between hard money, collateral-based, right, and private money, relationship-based. Heck, yeah. Well, uh, to be mindful of your time, if you wouldn't mind, I'll open it up for questions. I'll be here as long as y'all want. All right. Uh, Britt, what do you got? She always says I, I pick her last, and so she's going first today. Uh-oh. <laughs> Britt, Britt, Britt's on the hot seat, huh? Okay. <laughs> I've had tons of questions I could ask you, but you mentioned how you don't have even enough houses to go after, and you don't typically buy from wholesalers. How do you usually go about finding your deals? 
I have, uh, you know, what used to be called bird dogs. I just call them affiliates. Who they will go out. They will do their own marketing. They'll do driving for dollars. They don't have the relationships. They don't have the money. They don't have the expertise. Um, so they bring them to me, and then I will will work a deal with them, and I'll give them a portion of the net profits. And then I will do a minimum of uh, two hours of one-on-one coaching with them with anything they want to know. Awesome. And then, of course, I do I do direct mail. I've got right now. I've got ten thousand postcards going out. Um, uh, we do some. Uh, I'm working on some SEO now. We used to do a lot of Google ads, uh, but um, you know that's when they change algorithms. It always screws things up. So uh, I'll be working back on that probably next month, trying to get another ads manager. So that's that's pretty much it. Thanks, Travis. Uh, <laughs> what you got, Javi? Uh, I, I don't have any questions, man. Uh, the the lead, how he, she he generates his leads is what I was going to ask. So uh, thanks, Brittany, for going first. Uh, JP, you got anything? Guess not. <laughs> He's still there. Or not. He's having a beer. Yeah, baby. <laughs> no, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been gold, and uh, it's a pleasure working with you too. Uh, y'all should look him up. He's he's legitimate. So uh. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, I tell you, these have been uh, two of the easiest deals. And like I say, you know, that's why I always ask for the contracts up front because anybody that sends me a two-page contract, I, I, I'm, I'm going to send it right back. So I'll never do it. When I saw you use the track or the TAR form. I'm like, this is this is what you need right here. You and know, I'll tell you what, I got it locked up for everything. A lot of people, because I've dealt yeah. with wholesalers, you're like, well, well, this, yeah. maybe then I'm like, bro, I got it for this. This is what I want. If you don't like that, let's negotiate. But this is where it is. And this yeah. is what I know about the property. <laughs> you know, you're the only one, you're the only one I've ever seen that did that. You know, and most of them don't understand when I get the title commitment, <clears throat> their title commitment before it goes into my name. It's going to show in Schedule D of the title commitment, you know what the what the title policy is on. So, yeah, it, it doesn't matter. I don't care as long as I can make money. Yep. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time, and I uh, hope you have a good time in Houston. And I look forward to working with you on this deal. So, fantastic. I'm, it, it, bring some more. I'm always ready to buy, brother. All right. <laughs> You'll take care. Thanks so much. You. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Bye. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed what you heard, please refer a friend. It would mean the world to me. And also, if you'd like to learn more about real estate investing, go to www.exclusivehousinginvestors.com. If you're interested in joining the mastermind group, email me at travis at exclusivehousingtexas.com.